I think the crucial problem that we're really wrestling with in this country, and I'm going to speak here um, on, a, on a, a sort of a, a slightly um, larger element of protest in the podcast this week, is a view of human nature that is uh, so superficial and so characterized by categorization and um, what is commonly today called identity politics, in which people are so completely reduced to predicates about themselves, this or that or another superficial or secondary characteristic of a human being that is supposed to be the driving, governing factor about himself or herself, that we have uh, completely uh, are being wasted and burned over by a view of the human being that is superficial in the extreme and seems to be getting more so. Uh, the classic word for this is sociological or journalistic. It's when people are seen in terms of categories and groups rather than in terms of individuals. And um, I find that uh, I'm a little buffered by it. I'm uh, formally uh, retired. That is to say, I uh, am not having to go up against from nine to five every single day the sort of current world around us. But I'm a human being too. I spend time in malls. I spend time in the internet. I watch movies and television and read the news. And uh, uh, interact with people in all kinds of ways. And as a uh, theological person, as a philosophical person, hopefully to some extent as, as an artistic person, I'm just amazed at the impermeable and to me really inaccurate representation of the human condition that is being perpetrated on us uh, on every front today, such as I say, that we are uh, reduced to categories, to cliches, to identities, to ethnicities, to gender differences, to various secondary and even tertiary aspects of the human personality that really don't get into the fact that each of us is a real individual soul, a real individual person who is basically thinking about himself or herself and how to navigate a world of, of crippling circumstances and givens of all different kinds, every single person, and yet we're foisted upon us in the world outside a conceptual idea of what a human being is that somehow thinks if you can just get that right, if you can just sort of affirm your secondary characteristics, your identity in secondary or political or ethnic or sexuality terms, you are somehow a free human being. And then, of course, people aren't free. They're just as needy and just as troubled and just as lost, and you can't say anything. The hardest part of it is that you can't really speak the truth. You can't really speak about reality of real people uh, in so many situations. I was talking to someone whom I respect, and she was saying that she fears that the real cost of political correctness is that people aren't saying what they really think. Now, that person is, cr is true. She's, she's saying something that needs to be heard. People are not saying what they really think because out of fear that they're going to be categorized or sued or seen as a certain kind of person or attacked in some bitter way or lose their jobs or lose whatever. So you simply quash down all sorts of otherwise normal, sometimes humorous, but simply real responses. It's not so much a moral question, which it's political correctness makes it seem, but it's simply a question of reality. Uh, people are not able to speak about reality. We're constantly putting an idea upon the way I think a person should be or the way I think they should act or the way my particular perspective on life uh, would demand that they act, and then they don't act that way. And so I become furious and mad, and basically uh, I shut them up, and I shut myself up because I cannot... The line between um, uh, a projection of identity 
and a projection of secondary characteristics of a person and the way we actually feel inside ourselves. I do not feel like most of the time a white male who is a certain age, who has been a minister, who is this, that, or the other thing. I, I feel much more like a needy, lost, resentful, hopeful, pessimistic, um, wanting more than anything else to be loved on my own terms type of person. I'm not a person who in fact thinks white. People will say that, but that's not how I see it. I think the way I think. And the way I think is actually the way just about everyone deep down in their points of need think. That's the, that's the basic uh, understanding that we're all the same deep down. And our secondary uh, uh, characteristics are not binding. They are secondary characteristics, much of which is projected on us. But the actual way I feel is the way a 22-year-old feels or the way a 45-year-old woman feels or the way uh, another person feels deep down. Because I hear Bishop Jakes' sermons. I, I, am, I respond to him as much as the people he believes he is speaking to would respond to them. I listened to George Eliot, who is writing, people will say, well, she was an early proto-feminist or even a real feminist in English mid-19th century Victorian culture. She speaks to me. She doesn't speak to me as a woman. She speaks to me as a, as a hurting uh, person who understands the binds in which people are of all sorts and conditions. Yes, of course, she has a natural feel for women because she is a woman, but the universality of her address uh, is not um, limited by what we today are so caught in, which are these massive uh, um, categories. Now, I, I always believe that you should have text when you're talking, so it's not just me, Paul Zal, um, inveying or speaking out of his heart, which may in fact be out of his, you know, crock. But um, I want to uh, first uh, quote from a uh, very visionary statement that occurs on page 304 of The Disappearance of Philip Wiley, 1951. I've talked about this before, and this is the book where um, the women at a certain point in time uh, all uh, are separated from the men through some kind of a cosmic blink. And um, the uh, women are all separated. Uh, uh, everyone suddenly lives in their own uh, private Idaho. These two parallel universes in uh, Wiley's book uh, reveal uh, very sobering truths about maleness and very sobering truths about the women. And the women do better than the men, although they have their own uh, very uh, uh, increasingly uh, heavy uh, crosses to bear. Now, in uh, The Disappearance on page 304, the um, men uh, at a high level are at Princeton at a conference to try to sort of figure out after two years of this fantastic, appalling situation in which the world finds itself, in which the men are completely on their own and the women have all disappeared. Uh, they're talking about what uh, they're going to do, and they don't know. But one of them gets up, uh, Professor Tretter, and uh, speaks for the author where he says this. If... If we should hit upon one more miracle, that is to say, if at some point the women should be restored to us, this is Professor Tretter speaking, if we should hit upon one more miracle and undo the sinister condition in which we have spent nearly two hideous years, I would earnestly suggest that we at once assemble to consider what applications of science in our culture are dangerous, foolish, wasteful, or of no immediate great value. Abolish them. Continue research, of course, but concentrate, this is the key part, but concentrate for a century or two on human nature and its needs. 
shape environment to those findings, but only after a long judicious evaluation of humanity. Well, what he is saying is let's focus on the human condition, human nature and its needs, not on all the sociological forces around human nature that we think are somehow able to be bent to human nature, but rather look at bent human nature. Now, this is an ancient insight. It's an insight that would come out of a uh, historically New Testament understanding of original sin, the, the, the problem that, that is deep within us rather than outside us. Yes, there are enormous problems outside Outside us, but the core problem of living is understanding and coming to terms with what lies within, what is inside us, human nature and its needs. And very few people are doing this. I mean, the constant thing you say, you know, the constant thing we always hear from the president and all the different councils on economic management, we're going to fix the banking system so what happened to us in 2008 or whatever it is will never happen again. How many times have you heard that? I ask you, how many times you've heard someone, we have to fix the situation so what happens to us will never happen again. So you get Dominique Strauss-Kahn's uh, misbehavior, or it's not been, let's just say his misbehavior, whatever that is, or anyone's misbehavior, and they immediately pass a ton of laws and ton of um, personnel uh, um, strictures and various policies that will, quote, prevent this from ever happening again, as if. I mean, do you honestly believe that by changing a million different laws uh, that you're going to change human nature, the, uh, that you're going to stop various things? Human nature will find other avenues in which to act out. Uh, you can put boundaries on young people. You can supervise them forever and ever, ever. They'll find other ways in which to act out because the instinctual need, the human reality of being a young person or being a man or being a woman, whatever it is, is larger than any laws you can place upon it. Now, Mockingbird knows this. And St. Paul knew it, and Jesus Christ knew it. But it's as if that insight is completely not on the table today. And I love it when Professor Tretter says, concentrate for a century or more, if we ever even get the chance to talk about real life again. Concentrate on human nature and its needs. Only shape environment to those findings after a long and judicious evaluation of human nature. Well, what a great thing to say. Now... Let me uh, give another <clears throat> text that to me is um, is uh, beyond question, and yet it is never uh, referred to, as far as I can see, in the broad and very young views of uh, human uh, identity that are all around us and that seem to govern policy ubiquitously. There is such a flaw, such a fly in the ointment uh, here about what really... Um, human uh, nature actually uh, consists in. And um, the power of what William Inge, the playwright, wrote uh, in his preface to one of his later plays entitled A Loss of Roses, which was produced, I think, in 1958 in New York, but was uh, uh, published uh, in 1960. Listen to what William Inge says about the same question, the same uh, issue in 1960. He writes in his preface, I feel that A Loss of Roses is a timely play. To be sure, it deals only with individuals, not representing any class or <clears throat> race struggle, not living with any consciousness of the atom bomb or of rockets to outer space. But it deals with individuals who, like people today seeking an inner peace in the midst of terrifying change, must come to deal with evil in their lives, either to be destroyed or to find themselves strengthened. 
And I purposely set my play in the depression because I feel that underneath our inflated prosperity today, there is a serious depression which we are struggling not to face. I feel that in A Loss of Roses, I have been able to make clearer than in any of my other plays an existentialist view I have come to adopt during the last ten years, that man can only hope for an individual peace in the world. Unlike Whitman, I swear nothing is good to me now that ignores individuals. Inge concludes his remarks, All attempts to deal with men in groups, or as objects of time and environment, I think, fail. Whoa. Well, that is absolutely um, to the point. The <clears throat> We are living in, uh, an, uh, as I say, an impervious world in which um, men, women are dealt with as groups or in terms of group predicates and identity and as objects of time and environment. And, you know, this fails. What, how can you say this? You want to almost have a demonstration in front of the United States Capitol or the White House. When are you going to people realize people are people? They are not ethnicities. They are not colors. They are not um, types. They are not um, demographics. That's the word, you know, all these euphemisms. That, this is not true. It's not reality. It's not immoral. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not putting a moral judgment. I'm saying it doesn't consist with reality. Reality is when you get down underneath it, people are all strugglers. And they have very little sense of these other things as definitive, except to the extent that the world sort of puts them in categories and they jump through hoops without even knowing it. I've often told the story of the very beautiful model in New York City who was an early member of our parish down on 10th Street and Broadway. And she, um, she was so beautiful in the world's terms. And, was so, and I knew that she was a model because she had told me. And she used to come to our midweek communion service and was obviously in great distress and uh, finally she dropped out after four weeks or so, and um, I didn't know where she lived or anything, but I definitely, my heart went out to her. Something was on her mind, and I happened to run into her. This was done in an article for Guidepost magazine about four years later. I ran into this young woman uh, in my clerical collar uh, on board uh, on a subway, the six going uptown or something, and I looked at her, and I called her my name, and she jumped the, the the idea that anyone would have known her name or cared, let alone a clergyman. And she had a good view of the church because of an aunt or something like that who had a good view of the church. She wasn't alienated, but she, she only had come because of a problem. And she jumped out of her skin when I called her softly. I didn't shout her name. And I said, I've missed you. How are you doing? <coughs> well, for some reason or another, <coughs> this touched her. <coughs> and she went to pieces right on the subway. And we got off and had a cup of coffee at 33rd Street or something. And she told me her story, and it was a very desperate story. It was a very desperate story based upon a drug addiction which she had uh, <clears throat> she had gotten into because of an attempt to control her weight. She regarded herself as fat. She was not fat. She was very thin. And she regarded herself as ugly, but she was not, from a human point of view, at all ugly. She was extremely beautiful. And uh, she was successful in her field, her modeling. But she, um, she didn't see it that way. She saw herself as fat, ugly, rejectable, rejected, unattractive to men, unattractive to her business, unattractive uh, to anyone. And she had a thoroughly uh, intransigent 
uh, sense of herself that was the opposite of what you would have seen. Now, someone would have said about her, if it had been written in the terms that I'm talking about today that are so wrong, you know, here's this young, white, beautiful woman who comes from a relatively secure middle-class background out in the boonies, comes to New York to make her living, and she's successful. And what's she complaining about when there are all these other people around who are just incredibly lost and because of their ethnicity or on the bottom of the end of the pile. Well, this is not how she see it, and it wasn't actually true. This woman was on the bottom end of the pile. She was she was as absolutely depressed and actually addicted to drugs that had brought her into situations that threatened her life. I mean, she was really one step away from getting mugged, raped, robbed, and murdered um, in the places where she used to get her drugs, which were some kind of diet pills, basically. There it was. And um, she, she was a human being struggling, no less of a struggler than the people that we would put into boxes. And sometimes the people we put into boxes as strugglers aren't struggling at all. They're happy. And sometimes the people we think are doing great, you know, Mrs. Astor, <laughs> are not doing great at all. This is a superficial view. I learned it on the subway that day in 1970. Oh, seven or something like that. And I learn it from William Inge and I learn it from the disappearance. We have missed human nature. And let me give you two other examples and then I'm finished. <clears throat> the other day, I'm interested in Jacques Demy, the, uh, the uh, French um, uh, director who did some wonderful movies. One is Lola and one is called La Baie des Anges. They're all available. And uh, one I remembered from when it came out, saw it in Paris, uh, Les Parties de Cherbourg, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg with Catherine Deneuve. It was her opening vehicle. And another one called Les Demoiselles de Rochefort, The Young Girls of Rochefort, which is marvelous. And we love these movies. And they were sort of an attempt to kind of bring a kind of a Hollywood musical sensibility into the French cinema. And they worked and they're wonderful. But the point is, when you see Umbrellas of Cherbourg today, and especially when you see Les Demoiselles de Rochefort, which are simply simple touching love stories about star-crossed lovers, but lovers who basically are, are missing, men and women who are constantly missing, and although Les Demoiselles de Rochefort has a happy ending, fortunately, and in a certain kind of a way, Umbrella de Schumburg has a, a kind of a bittersweet happy ending, but what's so striking when you see uh, Les Demoiselles de Rochefort, and it's in a beautiful transfer that Agnes Varda has done, I recommend it, but this movie, there's nothing, there's no political correctness in it, there's no, women are not being constantly taught to be as women and men there's an artist in it a lovely young artist who's a recruit in the french navy there's a a serial killer a murderer an old man a dirty old man murderer who is uh, you you don't see through till the end but there he is he's like the character dr lyman in william inge's 55 play bus stop he's a he's a wolf in sheep's clothing but you sort of sense it and he's found out and punished and caught and then there's gene kelly who has a thing for a much younger woman but uh, a true thing a beautiful romantic wonderful thing for francoise d'orleac may she rest in peace and then there's um an older lady oh she's played by a famous French uh, uh, actress, it'll come back to me, um, who plays uh, who the, the, the mother, who's excellent. I think she was in The Umbrellas of Schumburg. She plays a woman in sort of about 55, who whose lover from years and years and years before, actually, I think it's her former husband, returns, and they get back together. But there's not, there's not you know, ageism and uh, sexism and uh, all the different words you can use to describe all the different types of people. There's nothing about types in Les Demoiselles de Rochefort. No types, just people. 
who who love one another and who are who miss it, who have illegitimate children, or you know what we today call single mothers. Not a group though; they're just people who who who've had trouble in sex and trouble with men and trouble with women and lost and lonely men and some some good men and some uh, misfiring men and some. Uh, deeply needy man, uh, George Securis is in it, fresh from West Side Story. And it's powerful. And I thought and said, you know, this is so refreshing because there's no, nobody's putting anyone into a category. There's no categorical thinking. It's a love story. It happens to take place in France, but it could take place in, in New York City and it could take place in Orlando, Florida. Orlando! I've just seen the Book of Mormon on the stage. Ugh! That's a whole nother thing. Or uh, it could take place in San Francisco. It could take place among gays. It could take place at a nursing home. It could take place at an elementary school or a junior high school, at least. It could take place anywhere. It's about the universal values that men and women are, um, are, are dealing with when they fall in love. And they don't always control whom they fall in love with or why they fall in love or when they fall in love. Seldom do they. And this, uh, it's beautiful. But as I saw it, I said, you know, there's no categorical thinking. They're, they're, they're French people, they're young, they're old, they're black, they're white, they're all sorts, they're gay, they're straight, but there's no categorical thinking in 1965 when he made this movie. And thank God, uh, you know, now people now say Jacques Demy was this, that, or the other thing. There's all sorts of literature on Jacques Demy. Say what you want. His movie touches a nerve in this man in his 60th year in 2011, although I saw it in 66 in Washington when I was 15, and it... I sort of didn't understand. I didn't quite get it, although I wanted to like it and I tried to like it. But nevertheless, there it is. No categorical identity politics. And it's great. See it. Now, there's one other thing that struck me as relevant to this. Um, this is a grab bag, but remember, texts. What have I done? I've talked about the disappearance. I've talked about a loss of roses, William Inge. And now I want to conclude with a remarkable <clears throat> a play that was uh, actually by William Inge in which he sort of put his views forward but in the terms of a universal story and the play is called The Dark at the Top of the Stairs and it was produced um, in 1957 uh, and Ilya Kazan uh, directed it and it is absolutely fabulous and I won't go into the long and the short of it but what I was uh, as you read this very remarkable play uh, about which by the way um, let's see it's right here hang on just a second Inge commented about Dark at the Stop of the Stairs in the foreword that he wrote, I think in 1962. He wrote this. Um, in Dark at the Top of the Stairs, I felt that maybe I was drawing a little on Christian theology to show something of the uniting effect human suffering can bring into our lives. Well, uh, what, uh, but, but what is striking is this from a modern point of view. You read it, and uh, it's about a, um, a, a very obtuse woman, a young sort of 38-year-old married woman who has a daughter and a son. She is very hard on her daughter and uh, doesn't really know how to love her daughter and way too attached to her daughter. But her great problem is she's way too attached to her 12-year-old son. She is profoundly, she, to, to the extent that she's mystified by her male and really wonderful but but other husband, uh, Reuben. Cora Flood is mystified by her husband, and especially by his sex drive, which is very normal. He's not depicted as a bad man in any way, shape, or form. He's a normal guy who has a lot of hurts and a lot of losses and a lot of need to confess his own humanity and his own vulnerability, but she's a very, you know, she's one of these people who's judging everybody and has it all sussed. She's got it all, she's got her, her life all set, but it's not set. And she's way too attached to her 12-year-old son who, who's 
who knows it and doesn't know what to do. He's only 12 years old, but there's a strong Oedipal thing going on here. It's very clearly stated in the play. And she has a daughter who's in puberty and is also totally selfish and completely self-involved and terrible. And all the mother can think to do is lecture her. Well, something terrible happens between uh, Act 2 and Act 3 of The Dark at the Top of the Stairs. And a terrible personal tragedy involving another person occurs that blows them all apart. And the result of this terrible tragedy is it has uniting and powerful effects. Uh, first, it, uh, it causes uh, the young girl to, because she's had a lot to do with it, the tragedy is partly caused by a kind of selfish obliviousness that the sort of 15-year-old girl had in relationship to a young boy who was very innocent and very sweet and didn't understand what this very selfish and very, very impossible young teenage girl did to him. And this terrible tragedy has occurred, which the young girl, with without knowing it, has partly directly caused. So she is brought to her knees, if everyone was, and she says she's going to Sunday school the next day, but it's very heartfelt. And the young uh, boy is shocked uh, by all these things, and his mother is shocked most of all because everything about her life, she realizes that her attachment to her son is really sick and uh, perhaps normal on the verge of abnormal, but ultimately sick for the sake of the boy. And she is thrown by this event into realizing that, and she realizes she has to cut the tie with her son now, else the son will be stunted forever and trapped. And she does it, where she allows him to do it, and together they cut the the, the bond that is between them in a most marvelous and healthy way because they've been jolted by a tragedy. The young daughter is thoroughly humbled and changed and it's a wonderful thing for a teenage girl to credibly be seen on stage as having sort of come to herself at an early age and what her selfishness and narcissism was capable of producing, which was a terrible tragedy. But most importantly, Cora and her husband are reconciled because Cora, who's been scared of her husband's sexuality and sort of has sort of has sort of pushed him into the arms of another woman by her censoriousness, her constant inquisitive questions, and her her need to control everything. She's literally, and the playwright makes it very clear, she has pushed her husband, who's a nice guy, into the arms of another woman who doesn't really want to because he does love his wife. And after this terrible tragedy has happened and everyone's been humbled, the husband sort of comes into the house and he's able to tell his wife something that's really going on. Uh, not an extramarital affair, but something that's happened in his work life that is really big and he's been so embarrassed and ashamed and he's able to tell her what's happened to him and she in turn because of this shock that she's had uh, with the, this tragedy that has shaken her she realizes she's been impossible and here is what I uh, what relates to what we're talking about earlier in the play um, she had been pushing him with constant inquisitive questions and constant pushing at his his masculinity you might say and uh, she has pushed him and pushed him, and he hit her. He slapped her uh, at a certain point. And he never, he shouldn't have done it. I mean, you're not supposed to, he was pushed to it from a, in the context of the play, but he shouldn't have done it. And she is shocked and, and said, you know, get out of this house. And he uh, is shocked by what he did. And he leaves. And he comes back. Uh, with the entire uh, hope of apologizing. He only has one thing he wants to do. He wants to say he was sorry. She then bends over backwards to tell him that she provoked him. She acknowledges her responsibility in her controlling behavior that has emasculated this poor guy and created such a desperate, childlike desperation that he slapped her across the face and uh, did a terrible thing for which he feels mortified. Similarly, he is able to completely confess it. 
And uh, without any conditions, he said, I, uh, yes, you're telling me you provoked it. Thank you for saying it, Cora. But I did it, and there's no excuse for it. And I came here all this way to apologize to you. And in the context of this, he's able to tell his secret, his sad professional truth about uh, his job. And then she is able to build him up. And then they together come to a new decision, which is very touching. And he finally says, you know, you've just emasculated me. You've, you've just, you lecture me, and you try to control me, and you want to straighten me out all the time and you're constantly telling me what to do and you're asking me questions all the time and rather than just letting me be a man and he says you've, you've, I'm not a man when I'm with you no wonder I want to leave the house and she is so shocked by uh, this tragedy that her daughter actually did and her the mother was sort of part of the whole thing because her daughter sort of the mother sort of had pushed the daughter into a social situation that she was not ready for um, she's repentant and she apologizes the deepest level to her husband and the husband apologizes the deepest level to him and then at the end they come together sexually uh, explicitly uh, that's the last thing that happens in act three although the the curtain comes down just before it takes place. It's a moving, positive, wonderful play. And Tennessee Williams, by the way, wrote the preface to it um, in, uh, in which uh, uh, he says, this is a play in which the stairs rise from dark to light. This is a play, Inge's personal Iliad and Odyssey, a Homeric drama, one in which the stairs rise from darkness to light. This is a very positive play. Now, what I wanted to say, and here I'm finished, is that in a world of political correctness, this man would have been immediately arrested for hitting his wife. She would have gone to a shelter. She would have gone into the category of abused women who ought to hate men for doing what they've been doing for millions of years, which is abusing men with their horrible, vile strength. And he would have been arrested and she would have put a restraining order and he would have spent whatever number of days or months in jail for doing what he did. And he becomes a bad man uh, and she becomes an abused uh, woman. And uh, in a sense, that's true. But that's not how the story, that's not how people are. He doesn't think of himself as a group of people who's done this bad thing. And she doesn't think of herself as a group of people. She may be, if you want to think of it that way. But the playwright simply sees Cora, who is really a terribly lost, confused, in some ways dreadful person. The way she's wrecked all of these members. Her son is on the verge of completely um, becoming rebellious in a nasty way because of his mother won't let go. The daughter's been pushed into an activity which has ended up in a terrible tragedy which she didn't want to happen. She couldn't help herself and the mother is partly to blame but the daughter is most to blame. The father has left the house because he's been emasculated and pushed out and yet he, he had no desire to get involved in another woman but he did because in a way he had no one to go back home to and she is all alone and finally Finally, she realizes it, and he's able to apologize completely and unconditionally. And she's able to apologize completely and unconditionally. And the little boy is able to break from his mother in the most touching manner that simply involves his taking a piggy bank that she had forced him to save all these pennies, and he breaks it. And he takes all the pennies, counts it all up, and goes to the movies. And he takes his sister his despondent sister to the movies, so the mother and father can now come together upstairs. Now, uh, this is not uh, in a category. William Inge didn't write The Dark at the Top of the Stairs about categories. He wrote it about Cora Flood and Reuben Flood. And when you read it, or when you see it, you say to yourself, well, that could be me. There are parts of me in her. I see parts of me in that little boy. I see parts of me in Reuben Flood. I can see parts of me in Rini. I can see parts of me in this impossible little girl, Flirt, who lives up to her name, who cannot handle anything remotely negative. I can see myself in all these characters. 
This is what it is. It's not about groups and categories. It's not about uh, groups and categories and predicates and ethnicities and uh, identities that are somehow able to, if you get that straight about yourself, you can navigate the conditions of life. It's about the human heart and the suffering of the human soul. There's a great episode uh, at the, the Loss of Roses, 1960, when Inge uh, quotes an evangelist positively. He quotes a long speech from an evangelist positively, and he said, folks, uh, we're talking about um, the deflation of the human heart. We're talking about, the evangelist says, the depression of the human heart and the depression of love and the def deflation of dignity and, and, and hope that everyone has. What can we do to live within that? That is universal. That's about real people. That's about individuals. That's about the human soul. That's about um, the, the, the character in the dark at the top of the stairs. That's about uh, the, um, the, the great hope that Professor Tretter in The Disappearance wants to give us when we can finally sit and study um, human nature. Let's do what David Brooks does every day, when he almost every day. Let's not coach people to think superficially about life. It will just disappoint our children and grandchildren. Let's begin to think about human nature, and let's spend about a century on it. And that's my podcast for today. Thank you so very much, and God bless.